You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, there's a big push to develop a vaccine here in the U.S., and in the headlines we hear about the efforts of other countries like Russia, China, and Cuba to do the same. This morning, we talked to Dr. Stephen Hahn, the commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, about safety and the need to include diverse ethnicities in the clinical trials underway. There is a race, and this race is against COVID-19. It isn't a race of one country versus the other. And at FDA, what we do is we look at data from um, any vaccine manufacturer, developer, and then we look at those data and determine whether it's safe and effective. And the bottom line here is we have a lot of vaccines that are in the pipeline in this country and around the world. That's great news. And everybody wants a vaccine as soon as possible. What we're going to do at FDA is we're going to receive those data when those studies are done. And then we're going to look at that and make a determination about safety and effectiveness. We've got world-class scientists, world-class doctors, nurses, pharmacists. They're going to look at these data, and we will make the absolute best decision for the American people about the safety and efficacy, and we have incredibly high standards. One of the things that's really important to the FDA is that we want to be very clear and transparent. This is the information we need to see in order to make a decision regarding the safety and effectiveness of a vaccine. So we put that out there, and one of the issues that we brought up was exactly what you're describing, which is that we want to make sure that those volunteers in the vaccine trials are representative of all America. So all ethnic groups, older, younger, you know, within a certain restriction of the safety of the vaccine and the protocol, obviously. But we want to make sure that they're all represented so that the results are generalizable to all of America. And so we spent a lot of time talking to the vaccine developers to make sure that's happening in these clinical trials. And as you may know, Catherine, there are two phase three clinical trials. So that's the, you know, the last set of clinical trials before the data comes to us that are in progress right now. And they've made really good Uh, They have good momentum in terms of the development of these vaccines. So relatively soon we should see the data, and then we can make the decision about safety and effectiveness. And then what about making that vaccine available to everybody? CDC is working with the National Institutes of Health and Department of um, Health and Human Services uh, to develop a plan for allocation of vaccine. Now, from FDA's perspective, what we're going to do is look at the data from the clinical trials. That will give us a sense of which, which populations of Americans it seems to be beneficial for um, and safe. Now, it may be that it's generalizable to the entire population. It may be that it's a subset. We don't know yet because we cannot prejudge the data. But once we have that information, uh, we'll be able to help guide the allocation process. But one thing's really important to everyone, and I think this is all of America, and that is we want to make sure that those who are at highest risk for the most serious consequences of COVID-19 have availability of this vaccine, regardless of socioeconomic status, Um, or or any other factor. It really has to be about protecting the most vulnerable. And so that will be a high priority. Also, making sure that those who are on the front lines of healthcare, food workers, et cetera, also have access to the vaccine. And so one thing that U.S. government's doing is working very hard to develop that allocation methodology and also to make sure that all the the supplies that we need for the vaccine, the syringes, the actual vaccine itself, the needles, et cetera, are available Uh, when and if that decision is made by FDA. How are we doing in that department? Because we saw early on, just even with the COVID tests and the the lack of, you know, reagents. So how are we doing on the vaccine end? In many ways, we are in a very different place now than we were early on in the pandemic. I I think we've learned that the the medical product supply chain, you you speak about personal protective equipment, reagents, et cetera, is one that is definitely going to require more redundancy and also going to require more domestic manufacturing. Um, Those are going to be really important things as we move forward. So July, August, September, very different from March, April, and May with respect to where we are with that. And we have been, U.S. government um, has been proactive about making sure that we purchase those supplies for the allocation of the vaccines. Now, again, it's all dependent on what the data shows. So I don't want to prejudge that a vaccine will be authorized, but the data will tell us what we need to do. But regardless of that, we need to be prepared for because if that decision is made that a vaccine is safe and effective, we need to have those supplies and the actual vaccine to be available at that time to immediately distribute. And what are you folks doing to help encourage kind of the broad cross-section and the, the ramping up in diverse communities? It gets back to the issue of that what FDA has done during this time is that we work with all manufacturers, but we've, um, I'll use the expression, leaned in on this. Um, we worked from the very beginning when the virus was first identified and then helping the manufacturers and develop a vaccine 
developers of vaccines go through the process first in early studies, safety studies, effectiveness studies, and now in the phase three portions of it. And we're not waiting for those studies to be done and then to give an opinion. What we're doing is in real time getting that information, talking to the manufacturers and developers, giving them feedback so that they can immediately institute any changes. With respect to the diverse patient populations, every week um, the vaccine developers are giving us information about who's volunteered for the studies, how many people have enrolled, what is their ethnic background, do we have enough of the elderly, do we have enough with comorbidities volunteers in the trials. When we get those data, we want to make sure that they're representative of the United States and what we do is give them feedback. Well, you should consider enrolling more of elderly folks, for example, or folks with diabetes or, or whatever it happens to be. But we're staying on top of it and working in real time. Let me contrast that, Catherine, what happens in a normal vaccine development where the vaccine developers would give us data after each segment. We would spend a month or two reviewing it, making sure it's okay, give feedback. They'd go back and revise. But by doing it in real time, we can really shorten that cycle. So not cutting corners when the science and medicine is done or the clinical trials, but really trying to make it as efficient as possible. And one thing that I've emphasized is that we're really looking at FDA to make our actions in terms of expediting this um, a permanent fixture in our assessment of, of medical products because really getting innovative products into the hands of American uh, practitioners, uh, patients, and, and consumers is very important. We've been doing many stories about how the Pacific Islanders are being disproportionately affected by COVID. There have been a number of fatalities in, let's say, the Marshallese community in Arkansas, you know, where they make up a very small population of that state, and yet I think half the COVID cases affect, you know, the Marshallese, those Pacific Islanders. You know, so whether it's here in Hawaii or, you know, in Washington State, San Francisco, uh, there is a concern that there is adequate representation in these trials from the Pacific Island community. I completely agree, and that is something that's top of mind for us. And as I said, we've been very explicit about the need for that diversity. But let me speak to that issue in general, um, because we've seen this in, in a variety of communities across the country. And, and some of it relates to how communities aggregate among themselves, how family's important, all those things that make all these communities so rich from a cultural perspective. We know that our path forward is fairly clear. We have seen uh, the way out of this through a number of experiences across the states, and we want everything to be safe for people. So the, really the common sense approaches of mask wearing, making sure that you avoid like, large gatherings, frequent hand washing, protecting the vulnerable, the elderly, regardless of the community, these are the things that we need to communicate to everybody because it's very clear that when these common sense approaches from a public health perspective are instituted, that then, then we're able to mitigate this pandemic. And so to the extent that you're able to communicate with any community, Catherine, it's really important that we, we continue to get this message out because that's our way out of this. That's the way we go back to school. That's the way we get back to work. That's the way we get America back. And then when we do get a vaccine, is there a priority list? You know, I don't know what kind of talks you might have been involved in, let's say, with our military you know, to make sure that our troops, you know, have a certain level of readiness. Yeah, Catherine, no, no question that's important. DOD, the Department of Defense, is, a, is part of those discussions about the allocation, and that will be top priority for the U U.S. government because, obviously, our national defense, in addition to our local uh, police force and frontline uh, workers, is going to be very important for everyone. How does that work if another country develops a vaccine? How do we know how reliable it is? We have criteria that we expect to see, and Many Americans don't know this about their FDA. In America's FDA, what we do is we look at the primary data. So before we actually authorize or approve a product, we look at the data from a clinical trial. Many regulatory agencies around the world look at a summary of the data, but we want to look at the actual information that was collected in the clinical trial down to a very, very granular level. Because what we want to do is we want to repeat those analyses to make sure that they're correct. So our standards are the same, regardless of whether a vaccine is developed in the United States or Europe or any other country in the world. We will insist upon seeing those data. If we don't, if we don't have access to those data, we can't authorize or approve it. So I want to assure your, your listeners, but also all of America, that, that their FDA is on the job here. We'll use our very strict criteria, and we will look at the data regardless of the source.
Anything else you want to underscore? I think it's really critical that everyone stay safe, that they follow these common sense public health measures. I know that there um, have been some recent restrictions in Hawaii regarding, you know, your outbreak there. And just we, we have a path forward. There is hope. We're in a different place. We have many therapeutics that we didn't have before. And, you know, there, there's a way for us out of this. And my absolute best to people, just please follow those common sense uh, public health measures. That was FDA Commissioner Dr. Stephen Hahn talking about efforts underway in the race for a COVID vaccine. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Your Backyard Quiz is next. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're revisiting a professional sports milestone for one Hawaiian man. The Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, was going to hold an induction ceremony for its centennial class this month. It's now been rescheduled for August 2021. Normally, the hall brings up to eight former players into the fold, but this class will consist of 20 football legends. It is the final event to commemorate the NFL's 100th anniversary in 2019, and one of the year's uh, inductees is Choi Apalamalu, just the third player of Polynesian descent to earn the honor. The first was San Diego Charger linebacker and California native Junior Seo, who is of Samoan descent. But the second has ties to our islands. He received the honor last year at this time after playing 16 seasons, winning multiple awards, and being named to several All-Pro teams. And while the first professional football player of Hawaiian ancestry remains in dispute, the first Hawaiian to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame is not. Who is he? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. Earlier in the hour, we talked with the FDA commissioner about the development of a viable COVID vaccine. Before it can be mass-produced, a potential vaccine must first be tested. Scientists from East-West Medical Research Institute here on Oahu recently announced the local stage for a series of COVID vaccine trials. Medical research giant Pfizer, along with BioNTech, is behind the trials. It's looking to enroll roughly 200 residents. Dr. David Fitzpatrick is the project's lead, and he spoke with the conversation's Harrison Patino, underscoring the importance of holding vaccine trials in diverse communities like Hawaii. So the stage we're at right now is called a stage 2B slash 3 study. So if I can explain the different phases that this vaccine's gone through. Phase one is the first in human testing, which in the case of this vaccine showed that it was very safe. And they actually tested four vaccines at various doses and finally decided on the particular vaccine that we're using in this study. This particular vaccine induced 2.6 times the level of antibodies that people who are recovering from an actual COVID-19 illness have in their blood. So it seems to produce a lot of what we call neutralizing antibodies. They're the antibodies which will actually help kill, neutralize, and then kill the vaccine. This particular vaccine is against this spike protein. 
So if your listeners can imagine the picture of the coronavirus that everybody sees on the news, the spike protein, which sticks out and gives the name corona or crown to the virus, is responsible for sticking to our cells and gaining entry into the cells. So that spike protein doesn't cause any damage other than to allow entry of the virus into our cells. So most people are uh, producing vaccines against the spike protein. So the idea there is that if you have antibodies that bind to the spike proteins, the virus will not be able to get into the cell. This is what we call an RNA vaccine. So it's a small amount of code which tells our cells to produce spike proteins so our immune systems can develop immunity to them. There's no danger from the vaccine. It's not the virus. The little piece of RNA or computer code is rapidly destroyed after it's programmed our cells to produce the spike protein. So the stage that we're at now is that hundreds of people have received this vaccine and generally reactions are very mild. There's two doses involved, three weeks apart. The usual side effects are very similar to the side effects that people get from flu shots. So that's a sore arm, maybe a little tiredness, maybe a low-grade temperature, maybe feeling achy, but there have been no severe reactions to this vaccine. How did Hawaii come to be one of the testing sites for this global effort? Well, we were asked to participate in this particular study because we have nationally recognized expertise in conducting studies and we have done a number of vaccine studies in the past against various other conditions such as pneumonia, respiratory syncytial virus that is a common cause of pneumonia in children and the elderly and some other vaccine studies. So we have the expertise and Pfizer and BioNTech were looking for somebody in Hawaii. Why were they selecting Hawaii? Because it's very important to get a population of various ethnic backgrounds. We don't want just Caucasians because drugs and vaccines can react differently in people of different ethnicities. What's the level of coordination going on here with all the other testing sites? Like I said, there's over 120 of them. It's over 120. I think there are now 140 sites throughout the world. The way this study is organized is that the study is being led by a group in England because they have a lot of expertise in developing vaccines from the very earliest stages. So they're responsible for coordinating with all the sites. Basically, the way this study works is that because it's mainly a phase three study, what that means is that we have to show that the people who get the vaccine get less COVID-19 disease than people who get a dummy vaccine. So the study is organized where 50% of people will get the vaccine and 50% will get a placebo injection, which in this case is just normal saline or medical salt water. I won't know which one they're getting. Study participants don't know which one they're getting. The biostatisticians have determined that we need to enroll 30,000 people to be able to show a statistically significant difference between people getting the vaccine and those who don't. So that's the gold standard for proving that any kind of treatment works. And so once 30,000 people have been enrolled worldwide, the study will stop. So we're going to be enrolling people, volunteers, as quickly as we can. And we estimate that we'll probably have between 250 and 500 people here in Hawaii in our part of the study. Now, you said earlier that having a really diverse field of participants in this study is important. Go into a little bit about the demographics of who's eligible to participate in this. What we're looking for is basically two groups of people. One, who are at increased risk of getting the coronavirus because of their lifestyle, work factors. So this could be people who are working with other large groups of people, first responders, people in healthcare, people who regularly use public transport, either as a passenger or a worker, people who go to gyms, going shopping regularly more than three times a week, going to religious services. Those all place people at increased risk. Then we're also looking for people who are at increased risk of developing COVID-19 if they get infected. So this would be people 65 and older, people with medical conditions such, such as diabetes, chronic kidney disease, people who are obese, people with heart conditions, asthma, high blood pressure is a risk factor, smokers, and then people in certain ethnic groups. So in Hawaii, that's 
Pacific Islanders and certain aspects of the Filipino population are uh, at increased risk. Now, Dr. Fitzpatrick, I certainly didn't have you on here today to discuss the ethics of testing here, but just to go into it slightly, is, is there any sort of ethical concern for the idea of distributing a placebo to people during the time of a global health pandemic, or is that just what it takes to get this kind of data to move that vaccination development further along? There's no ethical concern whatsoever because there is no treatment. I mean, there is no other vaccine available. So the way this study must all must surely work is that if a vaccine were to become available, then either this study would most likely have to offer a vaccine to people if it's this particular vaccine that works, or let's say that another company develops a vaccine that works, then people are free to drop out of this study at any time and go and get a proven vaccine. Has there been any concern either from community members or health officials about holding the trials here, or has this news been largely uh, enthusiastic? I think it's been very enthusiastic. We've already got close to a thousand people who have contacted us through our website to uh, sign up as you know as being interested. Not all of those people might qualify, but there's been a, an incredible interest. Now, speaking as a medical professional, what has been your take on some of the misinformation that's been widely circulating about vaccines, and in particular, the potential for a COVID-19 vaccine in the near future? Well, I think vaccines are generally incredibly safe. They're certainly one of the most effective ways of preventing disease. They're an incredibly effective public health measure. Vaccines are, are very safe. There's been very few instances where there have been problems from vaccines. This particular methodology of using RNA gets rid of the risk of catching an infection from a vaccine because it's not an inactivated coronavirus. It's just a small fragment of it which cannot cause disease. You know, personally, I think that the vaccines are very effective and that everybody should get immunized unless they have some kind of allergy to a component of a vaccine. And how long can we expect these trials to be held here in Hawaii? The trial is scheduled to last for two years, but we expect that we will have a result of whether the vaccine is effective by the end of this year, which will hopefully lead to production of an effective vaccine by very early next year. The reason that we're having the trial run for two years is we want to establish how long people are immune once they've received the vaccine. So after this data is gathered, then what's the next step in the vaccine development? Well, as we speak, Pfizer and other companies who are running similar studies are actually manufacturing hundreds of millions of doses of this vaccine, ready to get them out to the vulnerable population as soon as it's approved by the FDA. Well, that goes into the final question here, and it's the question that's on everybody's mind, and not to oversimplify the rigorous scientific process that goes into developing a vaccine, but everybody is asking how far away are we from a widely available vaccine? This vaccine is on a par with all the other vaccine studies that are ongoing. I think all of them are hoping to have a result by the end of the year and have a vaccine available in the first quarter of next year. Of course, there's not going to be enough vaccine immediately for everybody to get it. So there'll be some prioritization of giving it to people at the highest risk first. Now, Dr. Fitzpatrick, any final thoughts on the trial being held here? Well, I think it's very important that it is held in Hawaii, that we have the opportunity for our population to contribute to fighting this pandemic and also that we have our various ethnic groups participating so we can show that it's equally effective and equally safe in people from all ethnicities. That was Dr. David Fitzpatrick of the East West Medical Research Institute talking to the Conversations Harrison Spatino on a new COVID vaccine trial that's underway here in the islands. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at honolulumuseum.org. 
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Merlin Sheldrake, author of Entangled Life. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how fungi make our worlds, change our minds, and shape our futures. Sunday morning at 11. The replacement of the city's top legal beagle. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Christina Jedra is on the line today. Good morning, Christina. Good morning, Catherine. So you have a scoop. <laughs> well, yeah, I sort of stumbled upon this story yesterday, uh, poking around the city website, as local reporters do. I came across uh, a letter posted um, from the mayor uh, asking the city council to formally replace uh, Corporation Council Donna Leong, who has been on paid leave um, since January 2019 when she got an FBI target letter. So she's officially out, and acting Corporation Council Paul Aoki is uh, up for the job permanently. Yeah, he has been uh, filling the seat, you know, since she's been uh, uh, pulled out of the limelight. That's right. Yeah, he's been running the the department as the uh, city's top civil attorney. Um, And in the meantime, Leong has been on paid leave for most of the time since January 2019. As of May 1st of this year, she was transitioning to unpaid leave for reasons the city has not disclosed. Um, And so she was unpaid, but she was using accrued vacation time. Um, So she was still technically a city employee. Um, and the city never said when her vacation days expired exactly, but um, she wrote a letter of resignation um, dated July 13th, and her retirement is effective August 1st. Um, and the city never really announced any of that. <laughs> so do we know, um, you know why they made the switch from paid leave to you know, unpaid leave? No, they haven't explained that, and they haven't explained why Leong is suddenly now retiring. Um, Her resignation letter hints at at something. She said that she had hoped to return to work uh, to continue her service to the city um, and retire at at the expiration of Mayor Caldwell's term. But she said, quote, your recent actions make clear that is no longer an option. She doesn't specify what that means. And I've repeatedly asked the mayor's office for comment. But as of this morning, they've been totally silent on the matter. Now, Donna Leong uh, was put on leave uh, because of um, you know her link to what was happening with the Kealoha case, right? With the police chief, right? So, right, she's received a, an FBI target letter, which means that the the feds have substantial evidence linking her conduct to a crime. We don't know yet what exactly that is, um, but the city disclosed at the time of her target letter that it had to do with the uh, severance payment to former police chief Louis Kealoha. Um, but still, the grand jury investigation is ongoing as far as we know. No one's uh, been, you know, indicted. Uh, so we're just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen next. Right. But we've got other city employees who are on leave for various right. reasons, not just the Kealoha uh, case. Yes, we have uh, elected prosecuting attorney Keith Katashiro is still on leave. His first deputy, Chase Itzapolu, is also on leave and has been since about December 2018. Um, and we have Managing Director Roy Amamiya, who is still working but has received a subject letter. Um, so there's a little bit of inconsistency in terms of who has been called before a grand jury and who is still working and who isn't. And I know that uh, I think uh, several reporters have tried to get clarification about you know, what, makes, uh, what makes it okay for the MD to stay on the job when everybody else has been pulled back. Right. The mayor hasn't offered much uh, clarity on that. He just said that um, managing director Amamiya is essential during this time. He's, um, you know, leading a lot of the efforts to respond to the pandemic. And he said he's needed now more than ever. Um, I'm not sure why the, the city's top civil attorney wouldn't be just as important. She's a key cabinet member, um, but uh, she's officially retired. So we're going to have a new one, I guess. Well, you talk about the disparity, and I know initially when we had called over to the prosecutor's office to find out about Chesitzapolu's status, uh, we were initially told he he was, I think, directed by Keith Conoshero to take unpaid leave, uh, and he had to use up his vacation. 
But then that mm-hmm. got reversed because they said, well, that's not fair. <laughs> that's right. And I've asked the city if there's any written guidelines that say, you know, what's supposed to happen if someone is uh, accused of something or if there's a cloud of suspicion over them and they need to go on leave. And they've said there really is no written guideline, that they just kind of take these things case by case. Um, so that's what we've seen. Um, you know, meanwhile, there's another cabinet member, the Enterprise Services Director, Guy Kuulukukui, who is on paid leave um, following allegations in a civil lawsuit about things that happened in the 80s at Kamehameha School. So, um, you know, it, it seems sometimes that there's no rhyme or reason, but uh, if there is, the city hasn't disclosed it. And you, your article uh, mentions that you did check in with Ron Menor, and uh, the uh, resignation came as a surprise to him, too? That's right. Menor uh, chairs the council's Executive Matters and Legal Affairs Committee, and uh, he said yesterday that he didn't even know that Leong had retired. It was news to him. Uh, but he said that he was glad that the administration is finally moving forward to uh, select a new corporation council. He called the decision long overdue. All right. Well, thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read her story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. was something that many people hope would not happen here, but it has. COVID-19 has made its way into our jailhouses and prisons, and with testing underway, the numbers of positive cases is rising. HPR's Kuve Hirishi joins us live today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, at the Oahu uh, Community Correctional Center, we have an outbreak that has infected 249 uh, people so far, about 34 staff and then the rest, uh, 215 inmates. And so right now, uh, we are going through the second round of inmate releases, and it's uh, different from the first round. (coughs) The Hawaii Supreme Court had really wanted to do it really safely, but also uh, take precautions in terms of public safety. So they've sort of started to uh, release inmates in waves. So the first uh, wave, Uh, begins or has begun already and should be wrapped up by the end of today. And this is for uh, low-risk pretrial detainees, right? So folks that haven't uh, been convicted yet but are being held and post bail. So trying to get them out, according to the Office of of Public Defender, uh, that's about 24, actually, uh, 24 people who are eligible under that order, which is, you know, not uh, not too much. Uh, But the idea there is that we know that overcrowding uh, is is an issue with uh, at Old Triple C. We're talking about 968 inmates um, in a space or a facility that's designed for about 600 something inmates. And so, uh, the petition coming from the Office of the Public Defender to have uh, folks released who do not need to be there, uh, so that the the outbreak doesn't continue to spread, uh, was sort of top of mind. And so the hearing last week, last Friday, before the Hawaii Supreme Court, um, Nolan has been the director for the Department of Public Safety. It sort of explained how, because of these close quarters, social distancing is really uh, a difficult situation. In certain areas, for example, if, if it is known that we have two to three people in a cell, I think it is fair to say that it is a physical impossibility to maintain social distancing in circumstances like that. Uh, we work as close as we can with our healthcare unit to best utilize the bed spaces we have. When possible, uh, and under ideal conditions, every individual positive um, finding would be assigned to an individual cell. Uh, it's just a physical impossibility at this point in time. So the Centers for Disease Control does uh, recommend recommend that we do uh, individual, you know, once you test positive, you have these inmates isolated, medically isolated individually, but that was uh, difficult in a lot of the circumstances for OCCC. So uh, folks that have uh, tested positive are actually, some of them are being housed uh, as in a group, in a dormitory, but they're all positive. And so this has really um, prompted the state to look for alternative housing and to figure out how to... Um, 
properly isolate and then also quarantine uh, folks who may have come into contact with the positive cases until we can completely rule out uh, the the idea that they might have COVID-19. And I know, you know, that's our jailhouse, but uh, I think they had a case over at Halava too, right? Right. So there are about six other cases of COVID-19 in the state correctional system. So Halava, yes, uh, the only other uh, facility with an inmate uh, testing positive for COVID-19. They also had a staff member testing positive for COVID-19. So two in Halava, uh, two at the women's prison over in Waimanalo, um, and then uh, one at Waiava, but uh, staff mostly. And I think the sh- yeah, the sheriff's, sheriff's division uh, also had a, a positive case. Uh, but there is no, right now, Department of Health has not uh, kind of honed in on the origin of the spread at OCCC. And so uh, we will, you know, I think we'll have more information once this mass testing continues um, of all inmates and any staff showing symptoms. We'll have a better idea of where it's going. But uh, currently with the test results, there is no indication that it's spreading from facility to facility, if that um, gives people a little bit of ease there. Uh, But the Hawaii Supreme Court, as I mentioned, it's sort of. Uh, rolled out this first wave, so pre-trial detainees uh, by uh, the end, I think the close of business today, 4 o'clock, the decisions on their release, or their release actually, there was no hearing in in those cases for those 24 individuals. Um, They were, the Supreme Court had ordered OCCC release them by the end of uh, today, and then a second round of felony defendants, so low-risk uh, felony defendants, uh, will be considered for release, and that's about 200 uh, individuals at OCCC over the next week. Uh, motions for, for release will be filed, objections can be made, and they will actually have um, judges looking at individual cases, which has really been a, a worry for over the weekend. We heard from uh, folks in the, sort of the domestic violence advocacy um, groups calling for uh, the individualized process for these releases because in instances, for example, where there is uh, a detainee who is being, uh, you know, who's currently being charged with a low-level crime but may have a criminal history of uh, domestic violence or um, of, uh, you know, a restraining order, something like that, um, that's not being taken into consideration if you're not looking at their criminal history. And so that uh, was a, that's something to think about when we, when we hear about releases uh, of inmates. There was that case on the mainland. I think there was a, a rapist who, uh, he was let out and he immediately went to his victim's uh, home and killed her. And I think they were very concerned about that situation. Right. They didn't want to see that happening here. Exactly. Then Nancy Creedman, had, uh, head of DVAC, the Domestic Violence Action Center, had mentioned that specific scenario. And that is the case when um, there is nowhere for most of these inmates to go after they are released. And sometimes they will, most times, according to her, they will return to their victims, see the kids, try to plead with them to help me and, you know, find a place to stay. Uh, But, you know, State Attorney General Claire Connors has said they are looking for alternative uh, facilities for housing inmates. And that's a conversation they're having with the uh, Federal Detention Center, uh, but also working through uh, HIEMA on this. Uh, Here's Connors. We are looking to uh, ensure that we have the ability to do the kind of isolation and the kind of segregation that we need based on the testing. The other request we have also made is through HIEMA as well to uh, to possibly set up some additional structures within the yard at OCCC so that we can better uh, segregate the populations. So yes, we are looking into those options. The alternative facilities, again, uh, when we talk about releases, um, and 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 I and I do anticipate that there will be those who can be released safely. I, I want to be very clear that we are committed to that process. We just cannot jump over the Department of Health's role now in this whole process. So right now uh, at OCCC, the Department of Health is working with uh, public safety to get all inmates, all 968 inmates tested. Uh, So far, they've got about 400. As of Sunday, they had uh, tested 450 uh, individuals at OCCC. They've got half of that 250 are, are in quarantine. Uh, because it's possible that they may have come into contact with a positive case uh, while test results come in. 
And, uh, you know, I know the county prosecutors were concerned. They wanted to make sure that the inmates that were being released, that they had some place to go to. So there is no requirement under the current, at least not in the Hawaii Supreme Court order uh, of a residence, a verified residence. Uh, it is strongly urged, and uh, it is up to the judge, though, in the particular cases of the felony defendants being considered, whether or not that's going to pose a risk, and that will be a condition they can add to that release. Yeah, I know. There's just a concern that, that the inmates uh, ended up in prison because they didn't fo follow rules, and now you've got a situation where, yeah, they're let out, and, you know, how are they going to keep an eye on things? I think we'll see uh, th that develop over the next couple of days. All right. Okay, well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was a reporter, uh, HBR's reporter, Kuvehi Reishi. She's been tracking the COVID situation with inmates across the state. You can find her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sutter Health Kahi Mohala, serving families, children, and adolescents with behavioral health services since 1983, dedicated to providing treatment for healing and hope. Sutter Health Kahi Mohala. Tune in to HPR1 on Saturday night for Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note Virtually Live, performances from the Blue Note Hawaii stage. This week, it's an encore broadcast of Henry Capono and his band celebrating the timeless classic songs of the beloved duo Cecilio and Capono. And we'll hear an interview with Henry as well. That's this Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on your smart speaker. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu with a message to stay safe and to protect one another and oneself, committed to the safety of ohana and community. Kahalaresort.com In today's Backyard Quiz, we were testing your football IQ. The Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 2020 induction ceremony was planned for this month, but it has been postponed to August 2021 due to COVID-19. However, the name of the man we were looking beca for became a Hall of Famer in 2019. Though he is of Hawaiian descent, he was born in Georgia and raised in Louisiana. He played center and was drafted out of Louisiana State University by the Seattle Seahawks in 1994. Over the course of his 16 seasons in the NFL, he also played for the New York Jets and the Tennessee Titans, playing in a total of 241 games. He was named to six All-Pro teams and selected for the Pro Bowl eight times. On the day of his induction, he included these words in his speech. I am Hawaiian, and I'm humbled to be the first Kanaka Maoli to represent the people of Hawaii and the first Hawaiian to enter into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Ah, I love that twang. That, of course, is Pro Football Hall of Famer Kevin Mawai. The answer to today's quiz. We had several tries, but no winner today. If you have an idea for the quiz, write to us at hawaiipublicradio.org. Postal Service has been in the headlines for weeks now. Here in the islands, a spokesman told us last week that there's been no elimination of mailboxes or mail sorting machines. It's been pretty much business as usual. We asked about whether jobs have been affected, and we're told 
they are hiring. Kevin Nakoka has been with the post office for 22 years. He says he's had a good run on a job he enjoys. The Honolulu District Human Resources Manager began his career as a carrier at the Kapalama Station. He talked with us about the jobs that have opened up just this weekend and the seasonal hiring that is just about to begin. So this past Sunday, we have actually four openings that we posted. Two of them are city carrier assistants. You know, in short, we call them CCAs. And that is for... Honolulu, which is basically the island of Oahu, and then we have one for the island of Kauai as well, more specifically Lihui and the Kapa'a area. Okay, and I think because people have been reading about USPS in the headlines and they're, you know, they're wondering, they hear about cuts, but you folks have vacancies. Yes, we have vacancies and we're hiring. You know, right now our workload is, it's increasing and it has been increasing, you know, ever since basically Christmas time. So we have a definite workload you know, and we have a need to hire. So, you know, and these are the areas where we're hiring in, as, as I said, which is Honolulu, which is Oahu, and Kauai. And then we also have two rural carrier associate positions. One is on Maui, more specifically the Lahaina area, and the other one is in Kauai, which is the Kalaheo area. So these rural carriers associates, they, you know, they basically cover the days off for these rural routes, and, you know, anytime they're on leave. So walk us through the process, you know, what's involved in the application process? Okay, so in order to apply, you know, everybody just head to our website, www.usps.com backslash careers. And from there, you know, you're going to set up a profile on the site. And, and it's really simple, you know, name, address, contact info, and all that kind of stuff. But you set up a profile, and then once you set up your profile, you know, applying is fairly simple. It's just a click of the button where you just click on whichever position you're interested in, and, and you hit apply, and you know, your profile will go into that, that um, job application. And then from there, once you apply, after the position closes, um, you, you will take an assessment exam. And right now there's four different assessment exams depending on what you apply for. So there's one for carrier, there's one for clerk, there's an assessment exam for mail handler, and I believe the fourth one is for a tractor trailer operator. So there's four different exams. You, you take whichever one is appropriate. And then... From there, job offers are sent out based on score ranking. Then after, once you get that job offer, that conditional job offer, then you go through some checks. We have, you know, you got to do a drug screening and then a background check as well. Before you do the background check, um, we're gonna, we'll bring you in for fingerprinting. And, you know, it's not like before where you used to get your fingers dirty to get fingerprinted. It's all electronic now, so it, it's, um, it's dirty free. Okay. And these are all full-time jobs with benefits. For the most part, all entry-level positions in the post office is what we call a non-career position. So it's a non-career position that has no guarantee on work hours. And then the work hours are basically predicated on the workload. And like I mentioned before, you know, we have a lot of workload lately. So, you know, the work hours are going to come along with that. But, um, yeah, there's no guarantee on work hours. There's no career benefits per se. If, if it is, once in a while we do have career job postings and it'll say that on the posting itself. It's a career job with benefits. And then now I, folks are probably thinking you know, what about the holidays? Yeah, so it, what is this, August? Probably in about one month we're going to be hiring. We're going to start posting up um, positions for the holiday season, which we, which we call our peak season because that's what it literally is, our, our peak of our year. So we'll be hiring uh, we'll be hiring holiday clerk assistants. Those are um, basically employees who are behind the scenes in the post office or stations, and, you know, they do the sortation of mail. We'll be hiring those. We'll be hiring uh, PSC mail processing clerks. That's basically for the island of Oahu in the processing center. You know, they'll help move the mail off the machines, et cetera. And they'll also be hiring mail handler assistants, and that, too, is on Oahu in the uh, processing center. So this year we're looking at hiring approximately, I want to say about 350-plus employees for the entire Honolulu district. And that ranges from all the islands, including, which includes Guam, Saipan, and Pago Pago, American Samoa. So we're looking to hire about more than 350 people. Last, last year, we accomplished our hiring goals. We hired about 315 employees for the holiday season. And these are all... It's basically temporary positions, that, and there's a do not exceed date 
which normally runs in the first week of January. But, you know, it's a good way for people to earn some extra money, especially for the holidays. And, you know, we'll, we'll basically, I can guarantee you that we'll eliminate your need to go to the post office because you'll be working and you can do all your mailings, you know, after work or before work. These jobs, so you're going to start advertising in September and then those jobs run? They normally run from about mid-November to about the first week in January. It's, it's a good six-week period that they normally run for. And then what do these jobs pay? The holiday clerk assistants and the PSC mail processing clerks, they pay $17.95 an hour. And depending on what island you are, so there's a territorial COLA that goes along with it. So it, it ranges from about 17% to 25% T COLA, which is on top of your hourly pay. So if you forget, that's another about $4 and some change extra on top of that. Okay, cost of living. Yes. And then for the mail handler assistant, the hourly pay is sixteen fifty-five an hour, and again, plus a twenty-five percent territorial cola. But there are jobs to be had, and 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 can you talk at all about the hiring that might be done for the neighbor islands during the Christmas period? Uh, the hiring for the neighbor islands, like I said, those those will be the holiday clerk assistants. Those are the employees, you know, basically in the background making things happen at the post office itself. But each island, I want to say, will probably be hiring. In the neighborhood of probably 20 HCAs per island, and those will be going, you know, they can basically get their hours at any post office, um, but they'll be specifically assigned to a office, but, you know, they, they could they could be going from one office to another, you know, as a good way to get some additional work hours. But basically sorting, not so much delivering mail out in the neighborhoods. Yeah, those are... These, these are the care, uh, these are the employees that are going to be working behind the scenes. They're you know the backbone, the backbone of our operation, and they make things happen that pretty much not, not everybody can see. You know so. And then I understand that you know because USPS is in the headlines and people are concerned about the budget being cut and and uh, machines being uh, uh, you know eliminated, but you know that hasn't happened here in Hawaii, right? Oh, it's it's operations as normal. We we continue on with you know with our mission of getting the mail delivered and satisfy our customers' needs. And then are your carriers still working overtime? Well, right now, we, with, uh, with our Amazon deliveries, we are delivering seven days a week. So, yes, they're, they're working. They're, okay. They are doing whatever they can to meet our customers' needs. And heads up, uh, some of the job postings actually close next week, Monday, so there's a short lead time. An important note, there is a job requirement to be able to lift 70 pounds. And Kevin Nakoka shares his tip. Check with the UPS... USPS website on Fridays and Mondays for the latest job postings as things always change. Well, we have to go, but tomorrow we throw the focus on the Palama Settlement and its long history of providing for the most needy in our community. Do you have a Palama Settlement memory? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Reach out on Facebook at The Conversation or on Twitter, and email works too. For uh, all our uh, archive shows are uh, found online, just look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.